Hello. Hi, James. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. I'm all right, actually. It's Friday. We finished our marking. Yay! Yay! Um, oh, so I should probably introduce you. You are the absolutely handsome, gorgeous, <laughs> adorable Dr. P. Dr. P! <laughs> <laughs> I've had one sip of gin and I don't know who you are. I don't mind being Dr. P what? I mean, I'm worried now. Dr. James P. Ravenhill! And on my screen is the really talented, really smart, uh, really funny, and the best true crime buddy somebody could have, Dr. Oh, Gemma Graham. That was lovely. It's true. You totally put me to shame there. Like, nothing I said made any sense. No, I mean, the, the, very, the, the very handsome I took that. And Dr. P, I mean, God, that's enough. Can you explain your t-shirt, James? Oh, it's just, uh, it says Anderson, Folzkog, Lingstad and Ulveas. It's the uh, ABBA members. Oh, I love that. Yeah, doesn't it? Yeah, it's I really like too, It's a little bit too small, because as I was texting you earlier, I've got like lockdown um, snacking. Uh, I think it's some kind of obsession, so I can't stop snacking on things. And it's starting to take its toll. I'm not gonna lie. It's nothing to do with the beer. Nothing to no, do. No, no, it's to do with the amount of alcohol we've consumed in lockdown. Oh, it's just um, snacking. You look absolutely fine. I, I don't know wh where you think you're putting all snacking. No way. You're absolutely fine. Well, I've been doing lots of running to try and mitigate, as you know, but I mean, yeah. it's not, it's more about feeling healthy, isn't it? It's not about, kind of, yeah. Yeah, it's about how you feel, I think, a lot of the time. And I think, you know, when it comes to your, like, I think a lot of it is kind of in your head. About, so you can, in one day, I can go from feeling kind of really fit and healthy and, you know, athletic to feeling quite vile and sluggish and lethargic. And yeah, so, but at the, yeah, so at the moment, I, uh, I'm kind of looking forward to a lovely weekend, as you say, marking finished. And that is a big hurdle, I think, for us to have got over. What are you up to this weekend, James? I am, uh, I've got some beers tonight. I live quite near, well, I, I live opposite a churchyard. So during <laughs> these lockdown periods, I go and sit in the churchyard with some of my friends from uh, a couple from University of Sussex, a clinical psychologist who I always like talking to, and a couple of teacher friends. And we meet in the churchyard where like a bunch of naughty, rowdy teenagers. I thought but, you were like... I thought you were going to tell me you're off to talk to Jesus tonight. I thought that's what you were saying. I mean, I don't know if Jesus would want to hear what we say when we're six cans down, but um, <laughs> anywho. Yes! Oh, well, listen, I hope that goes well. Um, also and uh, there's, there's been an arrest in the murder of those two sisters in the park in London. So we mentioned this in our last podcast, didn't we? And um, we were talking about the fact, and I still believe this is the case, that it's a stranger. Now, we know he is 18 years old. I think they have released his name now. Um, yeah, um, Hussein, Daniel Hussein. That's it. Um, of, of Blackheath. But they've really not given much else away. So I was trying to, because obviously they were at a birthday party for one of the girls, and oh, women, ladies. And... Um, they stayed up, they were out till the early hours and then the attack took place sort of around 1am. Um, and so I, I guess part of me was like, was he there anyway? Was he sort of hiding out? 
they've just not given a, a substantial amount away. Um, obviously, because they're still investigating it. But I, I would, it'd be interesting to know if there is any connection whatsoever. I really want to know how they how they tracked him down. Yeah, because you know, as you say, a stranger attack. Um, uh, you know, ostensibly a stranger attack. And, um, you know, if he's from Blackheath and he lives in Blackheath, that's a fair distance from where they were, from where the murders took place. So you just wonder what was he doing in that part of London? Um, yeah. And yeah, I just, I, the obvious, I mean, he was, he would have been uh, quite badly injured himself. Yes. So it looks like that the women uh, fought back and caused some quite profound injuries on him. So I'm just wondering if perhaps his DNA was left at the crime scene. Maybe he's got a previous record. Or maybe somebody, um, a member of his family or a friend, kind of said, well, look, he came home with injuries, he had blood yeah. over him, and have turned him in, which, you know, who knows? I think it's incredibly sad. I think, you know, the sort of situation we're in anyway, and to go out and be able to have that small group of people celebrate, and then for this, and it was a frenzied, violent attack on these two women. And then, unfortunately, and despicably to have two police officers working on the case taking photographs of the sisters' bodies and distributing them over WhatsApp to people. I just have no words. It's appalling and it's so disrespectful. You're in a position of power and the one thing when dealing with murder cases is that utmost respect for the victims and victims' family. You know, we talk about the sort of um, being a secondary victim or the, the victim you know, family having to go through really triggering things, especially when it goes to trial and in the media, and then to hear the photographs of the people you love who have just been murdered are now being distributed out on social media is disgusting. Yeah, they were selfies, weren't they? They kind of took selfies with the, and the police officers took selfies with the bodies in the background, which is just, as you say, it's entirely disrespectful. It's just absolutely horrific. And it's really sad, actually, because I think it's uh, a... a, a kind of a frightening and disturbing and fright yeah and quite you know uh, distressing indication of where some people are in terms of the boundaries with social media and the crossover between you know w work life and what's acceptable and uh, yeah just as you say that for the families absolutely awful really distressing and that they've been fired right and they're going to face yes. criminal they'll face criminal um, action Absolutely, and so they should. I mean, bloody hell, just absolutely appalling. Um, so, what else have we been up to? I so last week, um, I took a couple of days off, and I met up social distance. I met up uh, with Becky and Kev, and it was the day that was the hottest day of the year. Lovely. It's like 34 degrees and for whatever reason we thought it would be a phenomenal idea to go on a massive walk <laughs> massively regretted that it was hot it was so hot like we were walking and you could tell we're all just like yeah no it's fine yeah yeah no it's fine and literally we're all sweating and you know putting factor 50 on our faces like smothering it in but it was so lovely i haven't seen Becky in person since we were in Rome in February um so it was really really nice you know we could the weirdest thing is we couldn't hug or you know you just naturally want to do that oh, I know not everyone does but I do that's but a long I, time to not see your best friend like that's a really long time to go 
what is that, March, April, May, June, that's four months without seeing your best friend, that is a really long time. And the, the, Zoom, the Zoom stuff is okay, but it doesn't uh, compensate for the face-to-face -face, uh, contact. Well, I did, I ended up actually making contact with her completely by accident. So we were, me and Becky were walking ahead. <laughs> and we were just walking up this path. We were sort of, you know, in a field or I can't remember where we were. And out of nowhere, this bloody pheasant just sort of jumped out, <laughs> flew off, scared the absolute shit out of me. And I, my reaction was to just jump at Becky for dear life. So I grabbed her arm and then I was like, oh no, I touched you, what have I done? <laughs> <laughs> that's all your, that's your years of true crime obsession, like even a pheasant. But you're right, I mean, if you're in the countryside and something makes you, you know, something jumps out of the, the undergrowth, you should freak out because you don't know what that could be. It could, I mean, my first, my first thing is always, it's serial killer. Like, Absolutely. It's like, someone's been laying in wait for the four idiots who've gone on a like, ramble of the hottest day of the year. And then my feet was like, oh, we could have that for lunch. I was like, what is wrong with you? So literally the whole walk, I was like, I'm so sorry I touched your arm. I'm so sorry I touched your arm. I'm so sorry. <laughs> she was like, shut up. <laughs> Um, and then I'm going to save the next story about meeting up with Pete's mum and dad for the end of podcast. Oh, well, very much. Pre it's really funny, actually. You'll appreciate this. So uh, I'll save that. Uh, but like, it was just nice to have a couple of days away from work and do things that felt almost a little bit normal. Almost. Yes. Yeah. It's nice to have been taking some time out. You know, I really hope that um, kind of students are as well. You know, I've got... Um, Two and a half weeks coming up, followed by another week in um, August. I've booked that now. And yeah, it's just really needed. I think, um, you know, I'm going to do whatever I can to get away. Uh, and yes, yeah, just a break from that routine. I think, you know, your life during lockdown becomes, a, becomes quite small. Yes. Um, so, you know, I've kind of got a fairly small house. So just kind of live within a, small, a few small rooms. And then, you know, I've just got my neighbourhood. Thankfully, I live on the beach. So I've got the beach, which is nice. But still, it's... It is still a small, um, yeah, small universe, really. I haven't gone beyond the, the kind of few kilometres around my house for months now, like many of us. Um, as you know, I really hate uh, uh, owning a car, so I gave up my car a number of years ago. So it means yeah. that I can't nip out, I can't get out of Brighton easily. Um, so I'm really looking forward during the holiday that I'm taking to actually getting out and about, visiting family and getting overseas. You know, I'm really committed to um, getting out to Spain, hopefully. Oh, I really hope you're able to. I know it's all up in the air, literally, but it, it seems like travelling is still picking up again. From, well, they've from... Yeah, they've confirmed now, they've just confirmed, it was breaking news about 10 minutes ago, that uh, Spain and France are going to be on, or are on the list, so we can travel there. And the FCO, we're just waiting for the FCO advice to update, which should be by tomorrow. And then we're going to book, we've got, uh, found cheap flights to Madrid, a cheap car, um, and then uh, a nice little Andalusian villa, hopefully, for 10 days oh. or so, which is the, yeah, that's the aim. That is amazing. I really hope that works out. I do. Thank you. Oh, yeah. No, I, we haven't really thought about what we're going to do. Um, you know, we're really lucky that we've got a camper van. I know it sounds really mad, but we've got a camper van. It's got a fridge, wine rack, you know, bed. And you can literally just shove stuff in it and off we go. Uh, 
I love that wine rack came before bed. It's like fridge, <laughs> wine rack. Oh yeah, bed. You know, we, we've got like, Do you know what? Fuck it. Oh, excuse my language, but fuck it. We'll just sleep. We'll sleep outside. So long as we've got a fridge and a wine rack. Seriously, I've done worse. And um, so we bought this second hand, this, this amazing VW camper van. Um, obviously, so cool. Oh, uh, it's been around the block a lot, but it's brilliant. And Pete's done a lot of work. He built like cabinets into it and, and bought a fridge for it and things. And he's, <laughs> the first thing he said is, I've made you the most essential thing that you need. And I was like, oh, and I think like, like comfort, all comfort things. He's like, I've, I've, done, I've made you a wine rack. And that Hello. was it. This is why we're married. Like you completely understand my needs. Like anyone else was camping, like packing toilet roll and all this sort of stuff. I'm like, wine rack, just give me the wine rack. I don't want my wine to smash when we're traveling. <laughs> yeah. oh, it's great. It's just so, you know, we're very lucky that we can go off and, you know, just travel about. We, 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 we took the camper van a few years ago up to Scotland and we literally traveled all around up into the Highlands and it was just so nice. It was so lovely. So, but the plan as well, if we can pop abroad and just have, you know, some time in the sun, that would be brilliant. But no plans at the moment. We're just going to see how the next couple of weeks go and then I've got leave in August so fingers crossed. I think you're more likely in August than we are in July to get away like you're I think August will be the month. I will find so. something. So shall we uh, um shall we make a start? Yeah well I was just going to ask in relation to my crime have you oh. ever been to Australia? I have not ever been to Australia. Mm. Are you going to do the crime that I, that I was going to do today? I don't I I don't know. I don't know. I changed, I had an Australian crime. Yeah. And I decided at the last minute to change it. So I'm that? not doing an Australian crime today. What were you going to do? I didn't go out my baby. Are <laughs> <laughs> you being serious? Yeah, do you know that one? No. You don't know the case of Azaria Chamberlain? No. They made a film about it with Meryl Streep in it. How, where, where have I been? How have I missed it? Where have you... Right. I'm not saying another word because I'm doing Azaria Chamberlain. You're not allowed to research it. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. No, I'm definitely not doing that. You can tell from my reaction. I'm like, what? Right. <laughs> um, oh, well, I, well, okay, so we're in Australia. I'm all ears. We are going to Australia. Um, I've also never been to Australia. Um, but I watched a series called Crimes That Shook Australia which um there's a crimes that shook britain series here and um i think they've had about six or seven series but there's also a crimes that shook australia and um i think it was a year ago i watched some episodes and one of the cases really stuck with me and i found it um on youtube a couple of weeks ago and i watched it and i just thought do you know what i there's a number of reasons i've picked it um which you start to understand as I go through it and I think there's a lot of good discussion points as well so would you like to hear about murder James of course I would go for it right. I've got my gin I'm ready to go okay so we are going back to um September 2013 what was I doing in 2013 what were you doing in 2013 I was working at Vondine College. Ah. And I was doing my master's at Sussex. 
Yeah, I was doing my PhD. Um, are there any trigger warnings or contact warnings for this one? Yeah, yes, there, yeah, very much so. Um, so trigger warning, I'm going to be describing uh, graphic details of a merger and also a sexual assault. Okay. Uh, the sources, um, this documentary, Crime Ship Australia, and the entire episode's on YouTube, so we'll pop that up on our podcast page. And also, I've got an article um, that I'm going to put up there as well that I'm going to discuss. So the article is about how the media portrays um, certain victims of crime and victim blaming. So I think this is this is a very interesting part of this case. So where are we in Australia? We're in a place called Neutral Bay. So Neutral Bay is a couple of kilometres from Sydney. So it's like a suburb and it's uh, apparently got like the best views of Sydney Harbour. And it's a very affluent place. So, so it, you, you can see in the documentary, it, it's absolutely beautiful, gorgeous. You could see why people uh, would want to go there and stay there. Um, and this case involves a man called Morgan Huxley. Is that name familiar? Not yet, not so far, nothing familiar so far. I did wonder at first if you were gonna do um, the Lynn, oh, I can't remember her surname now, you know, um, from Teacher's Pet. Yeah, from the yeah. northern beaches. Yeah, I thought you might be doing that one, but okay. no, this is this is no, a new one. No, this is uh, no, it's not that. Your accent's quite good, this Joey Mum. Thank you very much. Well, I watch Neighbours every day, don't I? So, I've, <laughs> I've watched Neighbours every day for the past like thirty-six years. So I should be pretty bloody good by now. I mean, you don't just watch Neighbours, though, James, do you? Let's be honest. <gasps> I sometimes reenact. <laughs> scenes from Nathan's <laughs> for YouTube. <laughs> the last video you and Jimmy did was probably one of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my life. Uh, yeah, so yeah, anyway, moving on, back to it's, crime. It's only got 50 YouTube views, like come on, it, it should be viral by now, surely. Oh, it's a hit, you should be on that YouTube show, number one, like best reenactment of a soap. Yes, you're welcome. Um, okay, so this is Morgan Huxley. He is 31 years old. He's a local business owner um, in Neutral Bay. I think he has a business, um, some sort of boat business. Um, he's very outgoing and popular, loved by friends and family. Uh, he is very popular with the lady, shall we say. Um, so he is, you know, having the time of his life. He's living in this beautiful um, place uh, near Sydney. He is in a flat share with other people. Um, so that's all you need to know about him at the moment. So the evening of the crime, so it's the 8th of September, the day before my birthday. Two, oh. Just thought I'd pop that in. <laughs> so it's 2013. Um, so Morgan and two of his friends, Chris and Philippa, had been at a friend's engagement party um, outside of Neutral Bay. So they decided to share a taxi back into the bay and um we've all done this haven't we once the taxi dropped them off morgan said let's go for one more drink so it's that sort of i don't really want the party to end now we've all done it haven't we james i mean i do that weekly seriously i hate it when the, the party starts fizzling out i'm i'm the worst one for a nightcap the worst yeah. thing about whenever you're out in brighton like if you hang out in Kemptown, on the way home there's <laughs> I think it closed a bit earlier now, but there was always the bulldog that would be open like 24-7. So even if it was like two o'clock in the morning and you were heading home, you could still go for one more at the bulldog. Of course, one more turned into six more. 
and you'd be in a hideous position within a couple of hours. But I oh, do like a nightcap. Yeah, I do too. When I was a student in Edinburgh, um, for whatever reason, uh, me and my flatmate at the time, Sarah, we went to this pub frequently and we ended up quite often in um what's the, what's the, is it not lockdown is it what's the phrase lock-in <laughs> <laughs> oh god so obviously when the pub shut like one two o'clock in the morning and they shut the doors it's a ma i don't know if it's a big thing um in england and scotland it is it is but in more rural areas yeah <laughs> scotland's quite rural i suppose yeah. um and then afterwards we'd, we'd crawl at home like the sun would be coming up and there was like a 24-hour bakery so you'd go around the back of the bakery and you could buy like pastries, donuts, is it like stupid o'clock? And that was our routine for quite some time. How I'm still a functioning adult is beyond me. <laughs> so Morgan had obviously been at this party. He was in great spirits, but his friend said, no, we're absolutely knackered, we're drunk. We just want to head off. And he was like, okay, well, I'm going to go for one more in my local. So his local pub was literally oh, like 50 meters from his flat. It wasn't far and it was called the Oaks. Uh, everyone there knew him, so he had no problem going there for one drink by himself before heading home. Um, before he went to the pub, uh, he realised he had to get some money out, so he went to a local shop. Uh, this is going to be important later, um, and I think I think he really struggled to get some money out of an ATM, but eventually he did. And then there is a CCTV footage of him entering the pub, ordering a pint, and then he's just sat at a table on his phone, and occasionally looking up at the TV. So he was probably in the pub for about 30 minutes tops and um, finished off his pint. You can see him on CCTV leaving the pub and then walking in the direction of his flat. Um, so that's, that's what's happened there. Um, so Morgan, he, does, he arrives back at his flat. So he arrives, I think, about 1.30 a.m. And one of his housemates, so I think the one who is like on the, the closest bedroom to him, she can hear some noises coming from his bedroom. And she's not entirely sure what it is, but she doesn't think anything of it. So she just sort of, she said when she's in, talk about the interview, she had her iPod in. So she kind of took the earphones out, had to listen and just thought, oh, you must have just got back, put headphones back and went to sleep. She then woke up again at 2.30, earphones out, and again, could hear some strange noises. And she was thinking, what, what's going on? Like, why is, why is there still noises coming from his room? So this time she decided to go and see if he was okay. okay. So she knocked on the door and there was no response. She opened the door and Morgan is lying on his bedroom floor, covered in blood. <gasps> barely alive and his um I think shorts or boxers whatever he was wearing have been pulled down um so she phones I know so she phones an ambulance and paramedics try to resuscitate him they take him to the hospital and he's pronounced dead at 3 30 a.m oh my god he's like killed with other people in the flat yes okay I won't say anything yeah, absolutely. So he at one a.m. he is he's in a bar having a pint. At three thirty, he's dead. He's been killed and very ferociously. So 
The post-mortem revealed Morgan had 28 stab wounds. Oh my God, that's overkill. That's like, that's not just killing, that's overkill. It is. That's like anger. It is, and it's, it was mainly his head, neck, and arms, and there was defensive wounds um, on mm. his arms and hands. Pro- I probably should have warned that I was going to describe that. Um, that's all right. And then the most, I think I think that'll be okay. I don't think that's. Yeah, the most significant injury is he had a stab wound um, in his head, and the tip of the knife was found in his head. That's how that's how severe he was stabbed. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So this was this was a re- this wasn't one stab and someone ran off. This was ferocious, and there looked to be um, just on visual observation there may have been some sort of sexual assault as well. Right, his boxer shots were pulled down, right? So that kind of suggests that. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of the cases we talk about, we, and I, I, don't, it's just, I don't think it is by any intention, we don't often talk about uh, male victims as much and sexual assault on male victims. Mm-hmm. So that always, that kind of stuck in my head when I saw the documentary and also how it was handled as well in the media, which um, I'm going to get to later on, this whole idea of victim blaming. So, um, that's that's what happened that's the case details at the moment so the investigation then begins so um they sort of they block out a big part of neutral bay so where his flat is the pub and the surrounding area um and the first thing they do because of the type of attack there's an assumption immediately that this is someone that morgan knows so this is uh, a girlfriend ex-girlfriend family friend some associate through his business so they start going through everyone that's close to him family members and interviewing them i was going to say like a murder like that with that uh kind of violence and ferocity indicates that it's personal like this isn't it yeah it, it feels personal it does so that's the first thing the police do and you know the general sense is no one can believe it no one can believe that he has been um, killed and in the way that he he was killed he was incredibly popular and so there's a lot of sense to the police there must have been more going on that maybe they didn't know about and there's all this speculation isn't there every time what's the motive what's he done um so once nothing sort of came from speaking to family and friends they decided to get an idea of what morgan was doing the night before so it became clear that he'd been at an engagement party and his friends, Chris and Philippa, said, you know, we got out the taxi and we separated. He went to the pub. And obviously we know that he made it back to his flat. So the police started um, looking at CCTV footage of that area. Just to see if there's anything, any indication of what might have happened. Um, so... Yeah, they found CCTV from the pub. So there was one particular piece of CCTV. So this is when Morgan's leaving the pub and walking back to his flat. Um, so he literally just walks out the door. And for some reason, he's got no shoes on this whole time. I'm not sure what, what that's all about, but he doesn't. And he starts to walk. And in the CCTV, you can see that he's being followed by another man. So you see him walk out of frame and then there's another man who's almost jogging to try and keep up with him he's still keeping a distance um 
is you know not to be obvious but you can tell that he is trying to keep up with them um the man is a lot smaller than morgan and younger and he's wearing distinctive chef um trousers so it looks clear from the footage that he probably works in a restaurant uh, or a cafe so he had like a, a bag on him and the strap was like over his chest and then he had the sort of clear chef's trousers. So that was, um, that they now had an image of someone who may possibly have been the last person to see him alive. So they're very keen to try and track him down. This is when CCTV, I think, I mean, I know I'm a CCTV researcher, but this is when it's just so pivotal. This is just the prime example of when we really need it as, as an investigation tool, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so the police's strategy the next day was to visit all the restaurants in the area with an image from the CCTV of the man and basically say, look, does he work here? Do you know who he is? Do you recognise him? And so um, they started doing that and it took them quite some time. So it actually wasn't until two weeks after the murder that someone stopped them in the street and said, oh, we've heard that you're going around restaurants looking for chefs. And he said, I run a Sydney cookery school, which is literally three minutes from Morgan's flat. And he said, we, you know, we, we train people to cook, we hold parties, we um, make food for big functions. You probably didn't think to come in and see us, but if I have a look, I'll see if he works here. So the police pull out the image from CCTV and the manager goes, oh yeah, that's Daniel. He, uh, he works in a um, So they didn't think to go there. They were so fixated on the restaurant. I can, I can see why, um, but it took the manager of the cooking school to go, oh, hang on, I've got a number of chefs who work here. Um, so the manager said, that's Daniel Kelso. He works in my kitchen. So Daniel Kelso, just to give you a bit of information about him. So he's 22 years old. He's described um, as a bit of a loner and he keeps to himself. He actually went to visit the cookery school a couple of months previous to that and asked for a job essentially. So he had worked in other restaurants and he had knife skills. So they took him on. I bet he did. Uh, yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, and then, so on the night of the murder, Daniel was working at a party in the cookery school. So you could rent it out and have a party and they would do the food. And it was, I think it was um, like 20, a group of 20 year old uh, like women were there. And the manager actually said to Daniel at the time, oh, you know, like you're single, you know, none of these women take your fancy. And he's like, oh no, I'm not into that. Um, so when, so this is important. This is this whole sort of, wrong place, wrong time situation. So Daniel just happened to finish work the, the same time as Morgan stepped out the taxi. So that's, their worlds were about to collide essentially. So I'll return to the case in a bit. So they were now on the 24th of September, so the murder was on the 8th. Um, Daniel, they got in touch with him, they spoke to him, they said, can you come to the police station? We want to ask you a few questions because we think you're the last person to see um, a man who has been murdered alive. 
And so he was asked to give his version of events from that night. So Daniel says um, he finished work and he went towards the local shops and pubs. So that was near the Oak, the Oak pub and that sort of area. He said he walked into a convenience store. And now this is the same store Morgan was in getting money from the ATM machine. Um, Morgan made, he turned around and said to him, oh, I'm struggling to get money out. Just made a sort of comment. And then Morgan left the shop and went into the pub. Um, this is this is the strange bit. So the police recovered further CCTV, and you can see Morgan. As I said previously, he walks in the pub, orders a pint, and sits down. Now, if you look behind him, there's the pub window, and Daniel stood there at the window, just staring at Morgan. That is it's so creepy. I. Oh. People being stared at, and they when they don't know they're being stared at. Um, I mean, I can just picture that in a film, and it would give me chills. Yeah, it's creepy. You can't make him out completely, but you can just you can just see him there, and it's for me, it's so eerie. And Morgan has no clue. He has absolutely no sense. Even the fact that he's obviously been drinking and things, it's not it's not like obvious. He's not coming and sat there next to him. He's very much just keeping an eye on him through the window. So that really disturbed me about the case. In like, um, maybe he fancies him. Maybe like he's, he's like, oh, he's hot. And then I'm gonna stare at him for a bit. Yeah, yeah. And Which like, more... I have to say, I'm a starer. Like I have to, my friends tell me sometimes, oh, you're staring at that person. Like, I just stare at people because <laughs> I'm interested in people. So sometimes yeah. when I'm like, if I'm sitting in a bar or a coffee shop or something, I will stare at people as they walk in. And I sometimes have to be told, don't stop staring at those people. But it's just because yeah. I'm interested in them. So, yeah. Well, I do the same. Airports, train stations. I, try, yeah. I give people stories, you know. Um, but this was clearly, he was quite fixated. I mean, Morgan was a very, you know, I'll put some pictures up. He was a very good looking chap. Um, and I guess it wouldn't be totally unusual for him to think, for Daniel to think he was attractive. I think the, the strange part is him just stood there staring in. Um, so yeah, um, the, he then says, Daniel says that um, he'd never seen Morgan before that night. So they had absolutely no connection whatsoever. They'd never met. Um, and the police actually get a laptop and they show Daniel, uh, who, turned, you know, who, who follows him. So he follows Morgan out the pub and he's jogging. So the police show Daniel the CCTV and say, can you explain to us what's going on here? <laughs> Um, so first of all, Daniel says, yep, that's definitely me. And then he says he's jogging because he was cold and his mum used to say to him, he should jog if he feels cold. <laughs> I, I mean, okay. The police, don't, the police don't buy it. Um, he also says at that point, he's not very good at remembering things. So he throws that in. Um, and he also tells the police he's got autism, and so that impacts his behaviour and his thinking. And we'll come back to that because he uses, he brings that up again later on. Um, this, this bit really got to me. So, as I said to you, I described him in the CCTV, and I said he had a bag on. So it was like, like it had a strap that came over his chest, and the bag was round at the back. He was wearing the same bag in the police interview. So he just had, you can see in the interview, they show actual footage of the real interview in the documentary, and you can just see the bag um, 
sat over him, that is very significant um, for later on. He remained very calm throughout the interview. He denied being in Morgan's apartment that night. The police then asked Daniel to provide a DNA sample um, and he refused. He said he didn't feel comfortable giving a DNA sample. The police had recovered physical evidence from the crime scene, so it rang alarm bells that he wouldn't give a DNA sample. Did he have any um, injuries? Because you would expect maybe if there were defensive wounds that maybe he, had, he would have injuries on his arm this or is, face. This is the weird thing, no. There was nothing obvious at all. And I thought to myself, even if he did, he could probably put it down to a, a shepping accident, couldn't you? So it's, yeah, dodgy territory. Um, this is where it gets really strange. So two days after the initial interview with the police, Daniel phones um, the main detective saying, I need to talk to you. I wasn't telling the truth in the police interview. So they're thinking, here we go. He's had time to think about it. He's going to tell us what happened. So he said, um, he said Morgan actually did invite him into the flat that night and he stayed for a bit. And when he left, he saw an angry blonde woman turn up at the flat. And so he's just assumed this woman has killed Morgan. Uh, again, the police didn't believe it. Uh, but that was his story. He was like, he went in, they spent some time together. He didn't make any comment about whether anything happened uh, sexually, for example. And he was basically making out this disgruntled ex-girlfriend or girlfriend turned up and um, kicked off and stabbed him. Feels like there'd be no reason to not mention the fact that, like, he'd seen her the first time. So why, it's just, it's always when it's, oh yeah, there was this really, really important detail that I just didn't tell you. Why would you ever not share that? I just exactly. think if, if you think you might be under suspicion, surely your um, kind of preoccupation is making sure that you've related all of the information that you can. You don't take chances with stuff like that. And then suddenly, oh yeah, oh yeah, there was a blonde woman. Oh yeah, that's that crazy screaming blonde woman. Yeah, no, that's yeah. just not right. Well, I think the media played a big role in this because the media um, were not very nice when portraying Morgan. So they would say he was a Lothario, he was a multiple dater, he had loads of women on the go. So I think Daniel could easily have seen that headline and thought, Do you know what, I'm going to now say that a woman turned up angry at the flat and it would fit with what the media are saying. And that's like, that feeds into the victim blaming, blaming, isn't it? It's like, oh, well then, you know, if you have multiple sexual partners, what the hell do you expect? Which is just, it's just um, kind of applying like a moral judgment on people's sexuality which is just so old but it's what the right-wing media do it's horrible and I, you know i'll talk to you about the article a little bit further down the line but put it this way his family were so traumatized with what the media were saying about him and they kept saying would this have been the case if it was a female victim is this how they, this victim would have been portrayed in the media so we'll have a chat I, about it. i think probably yeah i mean you know if i mean yeah who knows but if I think a lot of it is down to kind of sexuality and the media just kind of perpetuates these uh, kind of narratives about good ways of being sexual and bad ways of being sexual. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or whatever. I think it could be worse if you're a woman. Well, we talked before about how sex workers are kind of treated as, oh, well, it's a sex worker. Oh, well then what the hell do you expect? You know, if, you, if you're going to be a sex worker, you deserve to be murdered. That, yeah. Or you should expect to be murdered. There is that kind of narrative in the media. 
Yeah, well, I was watching the um, Jeffrey Epstein documentary on Netflix, and a lot of the victims said they were repeatedly called prostitutes um, in the media and by people, you know, just thrown out these words. So, yeah, I, I think it is a massive issue. And it's almost like this attitude, well, you must have done something wrong. Something about you and your lifestyle has caused this thing to happen because this doesn't happen to everybody. Um, so the victim blame is still a massive thing that happens. And it's exactly what happened in this case. They took the fact he was a good looking lad who'd done well for himself. And yeah, he might have had multiple partners, someone's business. Um, and they really went to town on that. Um, so I think that might be where Daniel has sort of made this ridiculous story from potentially. I don't know, he's a very um, interesting person. So um, based on this sort of fake account that he gives, they decide to arrest Daniel and the fact he wouldn't give a DNA sample. At the station, Daniel now refuses to speak, so he's not answering any questions. He's not charged and he is allowed to leave the police station as he is now the prime suspect. Um, and then something very interesting is brought to the police um, attention. So the manager of the Sydney Cooking School said that a knife has gone missing from there and it's never ever been recovered. Um, so the police decided to take clothing and the bag that Daniel has been wearing religiously uh, in the police interviews and uh, do forensic testing on it. So here's what they found. So Morgan's blood was found on the bag. He was so brazen, he sat in the police interview with a bag that had Morgan's blood in it and on it. Uh, do you think that that's how he transported the knife maybe? Absolutely, yeah. You can see in the CCTV, he's like ripped onto the bag and running, like the knife must have been in there. Um, I have to say they never recovered the knife, so they never ever found it. But there was, um, there was more uh, forensic results that came from uh, the tests. So one of Daniel's fingerprints was found on um, the bedroom door handle in Morgan's room. And also there was uh, DNA found on Morgan's uh, penis, and that was Daniel's. Um, Morgan's friends and family confirmed he was heterosexual, so it was unlikely to be consensual sex because they were concerned that Daniel was then going to go down that route and say that it was consensual. Um, so then the 8th of October, this is exactly a month, from the crime, Daniel's charged with the murder of Morgan Huxley. So now this is all about um, competency to stand trial. So there was doctor and psychiatry reports that the police managed to get a hold of and two doctors had made notes that Daniel had said he had intrusive thoughts about following someone home and stabbing them to death. Yeah. So he'd he'd made this revelations to doctors already. Well, prior prior to the murder. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> big swiggage in there. No. <laughs> <laughs> um. So in order to test for competency to stand trial, um, a psychologist called Susan Pullman was asked to assess. So she has assessed a lot of um offenders in Australia, and. Just before trial, Daniel said, well, she basically worked out he'd never had any 
hallucinations or psychotic episodes. Um, he would often mention knives. Um, and she said it's not, he didn't commit this crime because he's psychotic or he was having a psychotic episode. He wanted to hurt someone. He really, mm. really wanted to. This is interesting. So when Susan met Daniel, she said, when I think back to all the serious cases I've worked and all the numerous individuals who've committed murder, I felt a coldness and a fear for my own life when I left the room. Sorry, oh my God, that's, I mean, for somebody that experienced to say that is quite jarring and quite profound. And when you see him, when you see him and you see, and this is another sort of thing, people assume that you can't be an offender if you're sort of a smaller frame and things. When you see him and you see Morgan, you do wonder how he managed to overpower him. Yeah, but then Morgan was drunk. And he was asleep. He was totally taken by surprise. Um, but he, when you see him in an interview, he's just so calm. It's like a, it's like a really unnerving calm. Um, but she did deem him fit to stand trial. Do you know who he's reminding me of, the way that you're describing it? Do you remember the killer um, who's finally unmasked in Don't Fuck With Cats? Mm, and it's mm. just like some, you know, skinny, you know, young, skinny frame thing. And you're like, how have you, how have you kind of overcome, overcome all these people and committed all these terrible crimes? But, you know, it, it doesn't matter, does it? I think it doesn't matter if, if, if you're the one with the knife and you're, you've got the um, kind of logistical power as well in that context, then you can be, you can do these things. Absolutely. Um, and like I say, I'll go into what actually did happen in a second. So the trial started in March 2015. So this was two years later. And despite the overwhelming evidence against him, Daniel pleaded not guilty. Um, he actually enjoyed the attention he got from the media and in court. He was absolutely loving it. There's accounts from everyone who was in the court that said, he loved answering the questions. He, you could just tell he was really enjoying the moment. I mean, who does that remind us of? Ted Bundy, the don't fuck with cats guy. It's this narcissism. It's, it's suddenly all about me. Exactly. Um, so at the same time, the media are portraying Morgan really badly. So I found an article about it. And in the victim impact statements um, from his family, so, Victim impact statements, as we know, uh, family and friends of the person who has been the victim of a horrendous crime can go into court and provide a statement on how this crime's impacted their life, sort of psychologically, uh, etc. And the family, every single family member mentions the things that were reading in the media were horrendous at the time. Morgan was the victim. He was the victim of the crime. Um, so I found a really interesting article that I'll put on the podcast page. I won't go through all of it at the moment, um, but it was just this, this idea of, so the headlines were ladies man murdered. Um, so it was all focused on Morgan and not Daniel. And I know we don't like to sensationalize the offender, but they're not putting Morgan, they're not saying he was a successful businessman. He was, you know, he just been at engagement party celebrating. There was nothing about that. So he was a known ladies' man, playboy, uh, Casanova. This is all the things that were used to describe him. There were claims he was involved with 14 women. Um, with, there was no evidence to justify that whatsoever. 
um, another newspaper said it was a booty call that had gone wrong because he was found in his bed. Um, it was just absolutely horrendous. Um, so a report published in 2015, and this was in Australia, uh, reported cases um, of domestic violence. So this is the press. So the way they reported domestic violence was often in a salacious and misleading way, shifting blame onto victims of assault. Um, so as well as the scrutiny of his private life, other papers, um, again, they focus on the fact that he had been killed in bed, so maybe he was asking for it, or maybe he was experimenting. Like, there was just such awful, awful stuff written about him. Um, and then the other thing is, so obviously an estimated 85 to 90% of violent crime is committed by men, but what is forgotten is that much of this violence is perpetrated not against women, but against other men. And it's true, isn't it? It is true. There seems to be a completely different perception there. Yeah, so the final thing, there's quite a long article, so I'll pop it up. Um, so because Morgan was murdered in his bed, there was an immediate assumption he'd been killed by an ex-girlfriend or someone else he knew who was there by invitation. But it became clear as the investigation progressed, it was a random attack. Morgan had actually caught the eye of the killer while walking home alone after a night out of drinking. Um, yeah, so. It's one of those really rare kind of stranger murders. He was wrong place, wrong time. Um, yeah. Somebody who clearly had an intention of killing somebody and Morgan caught his eye. And it's all the what ifs, isn't it? You know, what if he didn't go for that last drink? What if Daniel wasn't working that night? But we just can't think like that. It, this is the way the world works. And sometimes in a lot of the stranger cases, um, as in the offender is a stranger, it is an opportunist, opportuni I can't say it, opportunistic moment, uh, as we know from all, all the cases. Um, and this is very much what happened here. But I think the really strong point to make is Daniel had been fantasizing about doing this and he had a knife in his bag. He had the murder weapon with him. It's premeditation. Absolutely. And so this is, I think, why the insanity defense was never happening. No. Um, so in, back to the trial. Um, so as you know, defenses don't have to take the stand. They don't have to be cross-examined, but he decided to. Um, he chose to take the stand and when he gave his evidence it was really clear to those in the court he was lying. Uh, Daniel's defence was Morgan invited him up to his flat where they had consensual sex. But the actual truth of what happened that night is Daniel followed Morgan home and he waited outside the flat for a bit. Unfortunately the front door of the flat was left open uh, and Daniel, so when Daniel went into the main door of the flat, he actually did cover his hands. So that's why no fingerprints were found on the main door. Um, he then stepped into the flat and he could hear a man snoring in one of the bedrooms and so made the assumption that that was Morgan. But at that point, whether it was sort of the build up to the crime or, or whatever it was, he didn't cover his hand and that's why they located a fingerprint on the, um, the door handle to Morgan's bedroom. Um, so he goes into the door, go, sorry, he opens the door, he goes in, he then jumps on the bed, he pulls down Morgan's shorts, lifts up his shirt and starts groping him. Uh, Morgan then sort of jolts awake, not entirely sure what's going on. And before Morgan, like I say, he physically, he's a lot bigger than Daniel. 
before he gets a chance to even defend himself, um, Daniel stabs him. So he already, you know, causes him not to be able to defend himself. I don't know how much further the sexual assault goes on for, um, but we do know it was a very, very short period of time that Daniel was in the house, and within that time, he did stab him 28 times. Um, so yeah, he just kept lashing down, stabbing him. Um, he does fight back, so it's very obvious there's loads of defensive wounds on his arms. Um, so the attack is over in minutes, and Daniel um, runs out of the flat. He, he takes a knife with him. And all this happened while other people slept in the flat, which... That's just I mean, the most unreal thing. I mean, that was similar to a, um, a Bundy killing, wasn't it? That took place uh, with the other young women in the house. And it's just so horrifying to think, well, it's horrifying to think that you're not even safe in your own bedroom and in your own bed. I think the idea of kind of starting to attack somebody when they're asleep, I mean, attacking somebody full stop, I mean, my God, it was, yeah, absolutely awful. But then when they're completely and utterly defenseless, um, to fulfill some probably sexual fantasy. Yeah, I mean, it's just, he's a really dangerous man, clearly. It's horrendous and it's frightening. Like you say, you should be secure at home. I guess a lot of people could debate about the fact the door was left open. Um, I know a lot of people that do that, not not really in the UK, but I know people in America that do it. Um, you know, some people feel comfortable enough to do it. He was drunk, maybe he tried to cause it. We, do, we don't know, do we? Uh, but I don't think that's a reason for anyone to get attacked. And um, when I first started watching documentary, I genuinely thought it was someone he knew that had done it because of the level of violence. It felt very personal. So I think the thing that drew me to this case was the shock that it was a complete stranger. And it's someone who'd met him five minutes in a local shop where he was getting money. Um, and then just the pure brazenness of sat in that piece of interview, lying and sat with evidence on him trying to make up these stories, playing on the fact that Morgan was, you know, potentially um, dating multiple people, which is no, like, as I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that you can write these horrendous, salacious news articles about being a Lothario. It's utterly ridiculous. Um, so the end of the trial, so it lasted two weeks and the jury found Daniel guilty of Morgan's murder. He was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in prison. Oh, good. And just to end, go back to Susan Pullman. So she's a psychologist that assessed him. Um, the final thing that she said in the documentary is, Daniel is the one offender that I fear more than anyone. And that is the case of Morgan Huxley. My God, that's going to really stay with me. I can totally understand why, yeah, why when you heard about that, it was one that you wanted to talk about. I, I think, you know, I think for me, I find it so frustrating, this idea that people can't get a full perception of men being victims of crime. I well, think I think because there was a sexual element. So it's when, yeah, when, yeah I mean, it, obviously we don't know the extent to which the, a sexual assault took place, but even if there was no sexual assault per se, this still was probably fulfilling a sexual fantasy for Sam. And I think we just find it, sorry, I'm just gonna shut my window because the seat is going nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I, I'm roasting hot with the window shut. I think seagulls just going mad. Um, yeah, so I just don't think the media can cope with men as uh, victims of sexual assault. So they have to kind of somehow frame, they have to somehow make him 
um, somehow culpable for what happened to him. But we've talked about that previously, you know, the, the fact that it, it's, a, it's a way of kind of um, rhetorically distancing ourselves from the potential of us being victims of crime. So what we, can, what we can say in this situation is go, oh, well, he was like some male slut who probably, you know, was drunk and just thought, oh yeah, I'll go home with this guy. And it kind of rationalizes um, how that could happen to, to him. Um, and it, uh, it makes us feel safer because then we go, oh, well, I would never be in that situation so that wouldn't happen to me. When yeah. the reality is, I mean, God, we talked about earlier, you know, how many times have I dragged myself up St. James's Street, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, yeah. quite drunk, not really knowing what I'm doing, you know, in the past, obviously not anymore. Well, you know, not since lockdown <laughs> anyway. Yeah, we'll see you till the weekend. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, um, well, good job. I really enjoyed that's, that. That's why I wanted to pick it because it, when I when I finished the documentary, I was so frustrated um, of how he was portrayed. I just I thought this is a bloke who's just been out at a party with his friends. He's gone and had a nightcap. We have all I swear I've done it more times than I can remember, or I can even remember, and just the way the media they should not have been focused on that they should have been focused on the fact there is a very dangerous individual walking about the streets mm -hmm. looking for a victim essentially what he was doing and there was a sexual element to it there absolutely was and i just think one of the things i thought if this had been a female victim um there'd be lots of stuff in the media like oh be careful walking al alone at night and you know you never seem to get that and i just there's it's like different rules and it shouldn't be that way. People are people and anyone can be a victim of crime. Yeah. And you, the last thing that we want to see in the media is the victim blaming because of, you know, the lifestyle that they choose to live. No one deserves to be killed that way. That was absolutely horrific. He thought he was safe. He'd had a brilliant night by the sounds of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's my case. Absolutely tragic. That's really, really sad. So I'm going to tell you about the murder of Jane Longhurst. Oh. If I tell you the big yellow storage murder. I'm not sure, you know. It, it might become uh, clear as I go through it. I think it, it might jog some memories. Sorry, just to be clear, we don't um, confer about our cases where we speak about them. No. Just so we have that sort of, you know, oh, we either we we've heard of it or we don't and quite often we've not and that's you know what's so interesting is we generally don't know about them it's not ringing a bell at the moment but let's see yeah i mean it, it was really well known and it is from uh, it is a local brighton and hove murder so uh, the content warning for this is murder and the source the, the actually the main source was just one source and it was um a blog true crime england and we are in brighton and hove Mm. On the morning of uh, Friday the 14th of March 2003 and 31-year-old um, Brighton Hove resident, special needs teacher and musician Jane Longhurst kisses her boyfriend Malcolm goodbye as usual. Her plans that, her plans that day were to go to an exhibition with her mom, but um, I think her mom wasn't very well so uh, they changed the plans. Mm -hmm. um, late, so Malcolm goes off to work. Later that evening Malcolm returns home and is really shocked to find that Jane isn't home. Um, and so after an hour or so, he decides to phone her mom and find out kind of if she's seen, if she knows where she is. Um, so he tells, um, he tells the mom, well, Jane hasn't come home. Is Jane with you? And the mom is like, no, I, I haven't seen her, but she, maybe she's at the youth club where she volunteers. 
So Malcolm calls uh, the youth club, she's not there. He tries to call Jane on her mobile, but the mobile phone is switched off. And then uh, Malcolm then calls Jane's friends to ask if uh, they've seen her. Uh, no one had seen her, but the friends kind of thought, oh, maybe they've had an argument. And they just thought maybe Jane's taken herself off somewhere to cool off. Just but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming just from what you've said already that this is very out of character for Jane. Well, I was just about to say, absolutely right, completely out of character. So Malcolm actually calls the police. Um, as predictable, of course, the police wait a full day before starting to investigate and uh, before they start their inquiries. But what they, they start off with door-to-door -door inquiries. So they do these, uh, the police do the door-to-door -door inquiries um, to Jane's, to Jane's neighbours, the, uh, the, the local vicinity. They, they question her close friends. They question her family and her boyfriend, Malcolm. Uh, but by the end of all this questioning, no evidence uh, has emerged. There are no leads. So all they have is this missing woman, completely out of character. She's a special needs teacher. She volunteers um. at the youth club, nowhere to be seen. So um, after um, kind of a couple of days, the police bring in an additional 45 officers to help with the search. That's how concerned they are about Jane's disappearance. And that because is, they- Thank you. That is, that is an incredible, I mean, if you think about resources and policing, that straight away, I mean, you can tell just from the work that she does, she is not the sort of person who would just take off. She's got a lot of responsibility. Um, 45 that's really yeah so because they bring in so many police officers what they're able to do is a really comprehensive search of cctv cameras so they they basically um study all the cctv from all the brighton buses the train station the pool valley the bus station from the day she disappeared and it shows up nothing so there's no um, evidence that jane's left brighton or like got on any kind of transport there's nothing no images of her leaving brighton Plus, close friends of Jane highlighted that she had a really happy relationship. Um, she was financially stable. She really enjoyed her job. So she had absolutely no good reason to run away or to leave Brighton. Um, mm. After a week of Jane being missing, the, uh, there's a public appeal for, uh, for kind of to appeal for information about Jane's whereabouts done by her mom, Liz. <laughs> and after the broadcast, uh, police received many reported sightings. And as we know, they have to uh, investigate all of these sightings. There were people saying, oh yeah, I've seen her as, as far away as Wales. People were, and of course they have to investigate these. Oh, um, there were no credible leads from uh, any of the information given by the public. So attention turns to Jane's mobile phone history. It was found that on the Friday afternoon that Jane had gone missing, her mobile had been switched off and had not been switched back on since. Um, which is always just bad news. Yeah, that's um, a red flag. That's definitely yeah. a red flag. How many people turn their phones off? Very, very few. For an entire week. And the last person Jane had had a conversation with was this guy called Graham Coots, who was the boyfriend of Jane's best friend. So what the police kind of thought was that she probably ended up talking to him while she was trying to reach her best friend. Um, right. so, so it wasn't really kind of notable to them that she'd spoken to this guy, Graham Coots. Nevertheless, they questioned Coots, but there was no reason to believe that he'd been involved in the murder or, sorry, the disappearance of Jane in any way. There was no evidence of suicide. As I said, no evidence that Jane had run away. So the police escalated the case from a missing persons case to a murder case. So they were on this pretty quickly. It was completely out of character. 
no evidence of suicide, no evidence she'd run away. We can, they're gonna assume um, a murder case. And of course, you know, um, they are gonna be interested in her partner. That is always the kind of the first place where they're gonna start, but they were able to rule out Malcolm, Jane's boyfriend, as a suspect. They started searching parks and wooded areas around Brighton. The searches reveal nothing. So for five weeks, there is literally nothing. They're just not making any progress, even though they've got all of these police officers on the case. So weird. It's like she's literally just evaporated. Right. Boyfriend goes off to work. She's supposed to go to London for the day. Obviously, that gets cancelled. He comes home in the evening. Nothing. And then nothing from her since. So now, five weeks after Jane's disappearance, and a man is driving down a country lane next to Wigan Holt Woods. I don't know where that is, but I found out that it's about 20 miles from Brighton near Pulborough. Which I, is that, I think that's West Sussex. I think so. Anyway, yeah. this guy's driving down a country lane um, about 20 miles away from Brighton, and he notices a fire burning close to the side of the road. Oh no. Stops his car and he wants to report the fire to the fire brigade because obviously he's worried about it spreading. He later reported that the flames had an odd colour to them, which I don't know anyway. So the I've fire never brigade. Heard, I've never heard that before. No, I mean, I don't even know what that would mean. But the fire, I guess it depends on the substance that's burning. I don't know. Yeah. So the fire yeah. brigade attended and they discovered the body of a dead woman in the, in the smouldering rubble. Jane's was the only active murder investigation involving a missing woman that was open in Brighton at the time. So like investigators, uh, like this is probably Jane and they rushed to the scene. When the police arrived, they find a, that um, they find a dead woman, obviously that the fire brigade had found and they found that she's been stripped of all her clothing. Her clothing are found in the smouldering rubble along with a cardboard box stamped with the word fragile across it. A pair of linen tights were tied tightly around the woman's neck, indicating that she might have been strangled. And an autopsy, of course, was performed and cause of death was confirmed as strangulation. Oh, God. It was calculated that the woman had been killed on or around the 14th of March 2003, i.e. the day Jane had gone missing. Oh. So there's this, there's this like latency, there's this latency between she's killed on the 14th and then she's found burning on five weeks later. So it's where, kind of like, well, what's happened to her for those five weeks? Where has she been stored? Like in a freezer or something? So dental records confirm that this is the body um, of missing Brighton resident Jane Longhurst. Of course, the police have a lot of unanswered questions, most notably, who had killed Jane Longhurst and where had the body been kept for the preceding five weeks? And five. I think that... Yeah, five, five weeks. So, I think that they knew that if they if they answered the where has she been question, then they'd be able to answer the who has committed this murder question. So the police I can't well, get over five weeks. That's and and not to be um, you know, it, it's hard to talk about, isn't it? But a, a body in that time, there's a lot of um Decomposition. Exactly. So, I don't know how, it, unless unless she's, I, mean, I, know, I know you're going to tell me, I just that, I do not speculate anything. Unless she's been kept, like I say, in like a freezer or, yeah, anyway, sorry. Sorry. I think, the, I mean, I think the fact that they only identified her via dental records kind of tells you the state that the body was in. I mean, obviously it had been burned as well, but it was, 
it was in the process of being burned for like the 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 tights around her neck were still intact for example anyway um so the police go back through the investigation they've now got a body their kind of worst fears are confirmed they go back through the investigation and they realize they might have missed something when uh it came to the interview with graham coots this last person who jane spoke to on in her phone records this um, is the best the best friend's partner is that right exactly exactly right so Graham's responses back when he was first questioned, just as like, oh, you were the last person to speak to her on her phone, his responses were rather vague. So two officers go back to Graham's flat to interview him again. When they entered his flat, and I was wrong, so his flat is the one on Waterloo Street uh, in, in Hove that connects uh, Western Road with the seafront. When they entered his flat, they were shocked to see piles of cardboard boxes all stamped with the word fragile, just like the one that had been found at the at the um, crime scene where the body was being burned, oh, so no. immediately, right? So immediately, the police are like, "Okay, this is really suspicious." So they ask him to recount his whereabouts on the night that Jane's body had been found burning by the roadside. He became really nervous and gave evasive answers. He claims that on the night in question, he'd been out delivering something, and I really don't know what. I didn't find out what that might be but he couldn't produce delivery receipts to prove this version of events. Uh, so the police decide to arrest Graham on suspicion of murder. They oh seize his car and the contents of his home, including his computer. And at the police station, um, actually Graham becomes more um, cooperative. So Graham Coots becomes more cooperative at this time. He answers all the questions that the police pose to him. And he describes the last time he and Jane had spoken by phone. Uh, on the day Jane had disappeared. So he's kind of giving a story that's accordant with what the police already know in terms of that he was the last person that Jane had spoken to on the phone. So yeah. he says, um, uh, yes, yeah, so he's like, oh yeah, we went swimming um, and then, no, yeah, we, she called me and we arranged to go swimming. So meanwhile, they search his car and the car reveals no clues apart from, and this is kind of a big clue, but it doesn't really form part of the evidence because it's not uh, dealt with in a forensic basis. The smell of decomposition in the boot of his car. So, it, was it, um, I don't know if you know the answer to this, was it normal that they would hang out? Um, well, I'll carry on with the story because <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, it's his boyfriend's, he did go swimming, they did go swimming together before and it's her girlfriend's boyfriend. So, you know, you would expect them to be hanging out together. Yeah. Um, I don't know really how, and also, I mean, we only get the information from what kind of Graham is relating, and it's in his interest to relate the fact that they would have hung around a lot, because he was the last person she called, and he says, well, yeah, we went swimming that day that um, she went missing. And we know in our, our own lives that we hang out with our friends' partners, you know, it, it doesn't seem that unusual in the face of it, does it? Exactly, exactly right. And he's kind of saying, well, yeah, we spoke on that day. So it's, it's in accordance with the evidence the police have already. Um, so it, the smell of decomposition isn't enough to hold him. Uh, he's uh, obviously admitted that he spoke to Jane and saw her on the day that she disappeared. So they're forced to release him. Two days later, the police get a call from a member of staff at the big yellow storage company just off Coombe Road in Brighton. So Coombe Road is just off Lewis Road as you head from the university campus into the city centre. 
you pass like Halfords, B&Q, there's a new Aldi, and Coombe Road, it's, it's actually a studenty area. It's a road that goes up towards Bevendine. And, okay. Um, just off the main Lewis Road and just off the Coombe Road is a, a really big, uh, big yellow storage company. I think they're still there. I myself have used it quite a lot uh, in the past when I was a student <laughs> and I was kind of going off for the summer. I'd put my stuff in there. Oh, it's so, a really um, great place to store everything. Uh, it makes sense. Yeah. And this actually, so 2003, when this murder took place, this is when I was at University of Sussex. So I would have been in my... When the murder took place, it was March, wasn't it? I would have been in my second year, my degree. So anyway, so the guy at the Big Yellow story com Storage Company had heard about Jane's murder on the news, and he knew that there was a question mark over where J Jane had been between her murder and these kind of five weeks later when they found her body burning at the side of the road. So, oh, no. the, yeah, so the guy from Big Yellow Storage wanted to report a man who was using Big Yellow Storage by the name of Paul Kelly, who, by the way, I've got a friend called Paul Kelly who lives in London. <laughs> That's how they say Paul Kelly. Who had rented out a storage unit on the ground floor and had a 24-7 access key. Now, this customer, Paul Kelly, had been in and out quite a lot, but that wasn't really the thing. That, I mean, the, the guy who worked at Big Yellow Storage said that he, had, um, a, he was odd, described him as odd but actually what made the big yellow storage employee suspicious was that after a while people had started reporting a really bad smell emerging from paul kelly's storage unit oh. and the smell suddenly stopped at around the same time that jane's body was discovered so police are like right this could be something they rushed to Big Yellow Storage to review the security footage. They've got really good um, security footage of Paul Kelly. And they realised that Paul Kelly is none other than our friend Graham Coots, the last person to uh, report seeing um, Jane alive. So the police are given access to the storage unit where they find Jane's phone, Jane's bank card, her jacket and her swimming costume. A blue shirt belonging to Coots was also found, um, and that was stained with blood. And there was a condom containing semen with Jane's DNA on the outside of it in the storage oh. units. Of course, Graham Coots is immediately rearrested and charged with the murder of Jane. Okay, so now he's arrested. This is the second time he's been arrested. And okay, Graham my case is like. <laughs> right. I mean, and, and I think, you know, this is a, a storage unit that I've driven past a million times. I've cycled past a million times. I've, I've actually had my own stuff rented there. And I had my own stuff rented there at around the same time that this murder took place. Oh, my good so, God. So it's, it feels like, as I said earlier, it kind of feels like a personal, it feels quite personal for me. And I don't know, it's a particular time in my life. You know, I was 20... Uh, one or 22 or something. I don't know, it just, it's, a, it's I don't know. Yeah. It, it, it's always really stayed with me. Yeah, so when, no, um, that makes complete sense. And it, yeah. it's really nerving, isn't it? When it's, it's someone you actually know that you can have some sort of relation with, you can think about it. And then if this is going where I think it's going, how it's just awful, unpleasant, and the sort of darker side of things. And then when they start to creep into your own life, it's... Yeah. It's, it's horrible, it's traumatic. That's exactly it. So, when, so now, obviously, this is the second time he's been arrested. 
Um, the first time they couldn't hold him, but this time they've got him on CCTV. They've got him um, kind of uh, all of Jane's belongings in the storage unit that he was renting under a false name. So this time he admits to killing Jane. He says, oh. yeah, I killed her, but he maintains that it was an accident. So this is what he says. He says that he and Jane were engaged in erotic asphyxia, which uh. is where somebody um, stops their sexual partner from breathing like via either like manual strangulation or using like a ligature to enhance sexual pleasure. Um, there's been cases of like people um, uh, doing it in kind of solo sexual activities and then accidentally killing themselves. There was a case yeah. of, I don't know if you remember the guy Christian, um, I can't remember his surname now, now, but he presented all these like property programs on BBC One. He was a really good looking, really lovely uh, presenter. Um, around in i would say again i would say like 2005 something like that this happened and he killed himself in auto uh auto erotic asphyxia like he strangled himself while he was engaged in like so solo sexual acts so it is a thing that people do well it's um, also i don't know if you've heard recently the sort of rough sex defense so um a lot of people saying yeah, I remember a girl in a British girl, Grace, who went to is it New Zealand or New Zealand, and she was killed um, by someone she met. She met someone uh, on a dating app, and they went out, and she was killed. And he very much said it, it was rough sex. She was um, it was consensual, you know, despite the fact that he you know hid her body, didn't phone the police. And I keep seeing this coming up. I keep, I keep seeing this sort of, yeah, well, you know, they consented, it's, it was an accident. And I just think, without being too graphic, it does take some time to kill someone through strangulation. Well, it's interesting because that's actually going to form part of um, the story I'm going to tell about the trial. So that's a really important point. So he says, look, it was, as you say, um, it was a consensual act. Um, she was into erotic asphyxia. And that's what we did. So this is what he, this was his version of events. He said, um, I called her, or she, no, she called me, sorry, she called me, and we met to go swimming, because obviously her trip to London was cancelled with her mom. Um, yeah. But instead of going swimming, they'd gone back to Graham's flat on Waterloo Street, where Graham had tied tights around Jane's neck as he masturbated in a consensual act. He says that once he'd reached orgasm, he noticed that Jane was lifeless, and also there'd been some kind of blood loss, which I guess was from the ligature being pulled too tightly, which is fucking awful. Anyway, Coots told police that he went to call 999, but panicked um, and instead wrapped Jane's body in tarpaulin and put her in the boot of the car, hence the smell of decomposition in the boot of his car. He kept her there until he was first questioned. So right at the beginning, you know, two days after uh, Jane went missing, when police were kind of following up on those initial leads and you're the last person she spoke to, after the police interviewed him, he was like, he panicked. So he was like, right, he moved the body to the big yellow storage just off Lewis Road. This is what um, really gets to me, is people's decisions before and after the crime. The crime itself is very cut a lot of the cases, but it's actually the decisions that are made. If you have accidentally killed someone during a sexual act, you're good, you know, you would phone the police, you'd phone an ambulance. What on earth would give you the incentive to wrap up the body and, and keep it? And start hiding it, to start kind of covering your tracks. 
It just, well, so uh, Coots maintained that the sex was consensual, as I said, and that Jane had died in the sex game gone wrong. Um, so the defense, uh, when, the, when it was brought to court, the case was brought to court, the defense argued that this is manslaughter. So they were saying, yeah, he killed her. He's holding his hands up and he is willing to take the rap for that, but only as manslaughter, not as homicide, not as murder. So th this is what Coots said in court. Coots uh, related in court that he had a neck fetish, which, I mean, that's, I mean, I don't know, but that must be a thing, a neck fetish. I must and, uh, and an obsession with strangulation. Um, and yeah, I don't know if I mentioned this, but I'll just say it now that apparently he had actually been to the GP at some point saying, look, I'm obsessed with strangulation. So he'd actually sought help from mental health professionals for this obsession. Um, and witnesses for the defense, so um, basically ex-girlfriends of Graham Coots confirmed that they had engaged in, they called it breath control play, basically erotic asphyxia with Coots previously. So he's like building up this defense that, yeah, okay, this is something I'm into. I'm into strangulation during sex. Um, and what the defense also tried to do was um, to try and show that Jane was also into that. So the defence brought in, uh, brought to the stand, a former colleague of Jane's who said that Jane's had once told her that a recent sexual encounter had involved, quote, some kind of stopping breathing. So basically the defence were trying to say, look, she was consensual, she was part of this. Surely. In, in which surely, case it might be manslaughter. Surely you would bring in the current partner. Right, well, right, so exactly. So the... Um, this was like an attempt to show that Jane was into this kind of sex, but Malcolm, the current partner, and ex-boyfriends were just like, this just wasn't true. She was not into that kind of sex. Um, so Coots has spoken to his obsession with strangulation, and a big part of the prosecution's case was that they had found something like 800 or 900 um, violent pornographic images on Coots' computer including rape and strangulation porn, and also necrophilia. Oh. Right, so, which obviously the press had a field day with. Um, so, I mean, this is really, really dark stuff. This is not common or garden pornography. This is really dark pornography. Um, and yeah, I, I just wanna say that there are, there is more in this blog, this True Crime England blog about, um, the, the type of images that were found on Coop's computer. But to be perfectly honest, I think it's too much for this podcast. And I just think, I think people can leave it to their imagination. If you want to know more, you can read the, the, the blog because it tells you, but it's so dark that I just think, no. I, I think it's fair to say it's violent porn and we can it's leave violent it. It's violent porn, it's, ne it's necrophilia, necrophilia, you know, just really, really gross, disgusting stuff, horrible stuff. Yeah. Um, so to, con so to con uh, secure a murder conviction, the prosecution had to prove that Coots would have to be aware that Jane was losing or had lost her life during the sex act. They had to prove that he would have become aware of her death during this kind of sexual experience that he was having. Um, oh, and, and apparently they were both having, but whatever. So the defence claims that during erotic asphyxia, somebody can die in a matter of seconds without any warning signs being manifest. So, for example, 
you can have sudden hemorrhage or a sudden dangerous heart arrhythmia that doesn't manifest in symptoms. So in other words, somebody can be completely kind of conscious and then bam, can right. suddenly die. And that was the defense's argument, because in that case, if it's consensual sex and she dies suddenly without him knowing, yeah, I've then got it. that he suddenly turns around and he's orgasm, then suddenly, oh shit, she's dead. Mm. Then the manslaughter uh, charge kind of stands. So people in, who engage in uh, erotic asphyxia, um, apparently they say, yeah, that is a danger of doing uh, erotic asphyxia, that you can have this sudden death. Apparently it's fairly widely known amongst practices, the practitioners of that particular sexual um, practice. But, a and they got a pathologist for the defence, like Dr. So-and-so, I actually haven't got his name here, but a pathologist for the defence backed up that, that, that defence. That basically she could have just died really suddenly with no, no uh, signs that she was going to die. But a pathologist for the prosecution, Dr. Vesna Durovich, stated that during strangulation, warning, start, warning signs start to show two to three minutes before death, which is what you were saying. Meaning that Coots would have had the opportunity to stop the sex and help Jane before she died. So he would have become aware of this. Yeah. There is, I don't know, I, don't, I really don't know where I stand on this uh, in terms of the quality of this evidence. Because this pathologist, and don't forget, it's just one expert against another expert. Absolutely. It's supposed to be neutral. And in these cases, they do tend to bring in a number of experts to contradict each other. You know, there's, there's so many cases this has happened. So, it, yeah, it's a really tricky one. And we've talked about it before, like with the, um, you know, I, I think with the Susan Powell case that, you know, we just, we assume that these experts have got all this knowledge, but they're allowed to say whatever they want up there. They Absolutely. They say whatever the hell they want. The, and we obviously don't, they get cross-examined. Yeah. But we don't always, you know, understand the full motivation and you're going up there and you're kind, you're putting your career, you know, in the spotlight. And, um, you know, I, I was just thinking of like the, um, was it the Innocence Files on Netflix where they had the forensic dentist yeah. and he uh, fabricated a lot of, of evidence? Well, I think forensic dentistry has now been kind of, it's largely dismissed. I think they still use it, but I think a lot of, a lot of people accept that it's just not kind of reliable evidence. So anyway, yeah. so they've got this prosecutor. I'm not saying that I don't think he's guilty of murder, but I'm just saying that this Vesna Durovich, this is what she said. She said, as I've said, two to three minutes before somebody dies of strangulation, you know they're going to die. This pathologist had extensive experience of studying victims of strangulation in murder cases. So, so her testimony is criticised because in a murder context, the purpose of strangulation is to kill, right? But if you're having sex with somebody and doing erotic asphyxia, that, the intention is to keep the person alive. Yes. Right? You, you, you want to enhance sexual pleasure, but you definitely don't want to kill that person. So the criticism of Dr. Durovich, uh, Durovich's, sorry, that's horrible pronunciation, <laughs> Durovich, the, 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 the problem with her testimony is that it's kind of circular. She, she's uh, assuming that he's murdered somebody, and so her evidence supports the idea that, uh, that there's been a murder. But if she didn't assume that it was murder, then she might not have been able to come to that conclusion. 
Yeah, so I, agree really, I think that evidence is dodgy, but I... the jury deliberated for three days and they were convinced by the um, prosecution's arguments and Coots was found guilty of murder. Um, I mean, it's really hard to say, but I mean, my personal approach to this is that um, he committed murder. I don't think that Jane um, volunteered to take part in that sex act. I think he tied tights around her neck and murdered her as part of a um, sexually sadistic um, project. I think the content of his computer kind of indicates that that's what he was into. Um, he was obsessed, obsessed with murder by strangulation. He found it sexually arousing. And I think the, the jury made the right decision. That's my uh, personal opinion. And I'm also, again, I might be totally talking nonsense, but, uh, you know, the, the description of this sort of limiting the breathing and, you know, the sexual satisfaction that you get from it. My assumption would be there has to be two parties involved in that sexual act. And from what you said, he was pleasing himself. But this was his, you know, statement. And she, what, there was no... Like, what was in it for her? Yes. Yeah, what was in it for her? And, and also, you know, the fact that he used tights, like a pair of tights, it feels to me like that might be part of the fantasy. And also, that just renders her completely helpless. It's not as if he's got one hand on her neck. He's yes. got tights around her neck. Yeah. Um, which, yeah. Um, the, uh, he was sentenced to life with a 30-year tariff. Um, in 2005, he appealed that, um, that uh, sentence. They reduced it to 26 years. In July 2007, he was granted a retrial because uh, he said that they should have found me guilty of manslaughter, not murder. He was granted a retrial, but he was found guilty again, a majority right. of 11 to 1. Um, I did read somewhere that he's just, um, in 2019, he was granted permission to be moved from, uh, I think he's at HMP Wakefield, okay. and he's just been given permission to move to a prison in Scotland, because he is actually from Fife. Oh my god. Yeah. That's where I'm from. Yeah, that's why oh. I thought, yeah. I thought, I, that's another reason why I thought you might know it. So he was granted permission. Um, he was supposed to move recently, but owing to COVID, he hasn't been moved. And apparently he's causing a lot of kind of fuss um, over the fact that he won't be moved. By all accounts, he's a really kind of dangerous, narcissistic man. And prison is the right place for him. And um, the reason why, so there's a couple of reasons why this case really stuck with me. One of them is because, as I say, I was a young man, early 20s living in Brighton at the time. I was actually living in, I was living in Brighton at the time, but Waterloo Street, where Graham Coots was arrested and where the murder took place, right, was only three streets down from where I'd lived in my first year. I lived on Holland Road because the university used to have accommodation down there. But more so this, on the day that Coots was arrested and his house was searched, my mom and my sister were down in Brighton visiting, uh, visiting me, and they were staying in a B&B on Waterloo Street. And they text me and said, James, something's happening on Waterloo Street. Okay. And all the, they closed the street and all the cars and uh, all the police cars. And obviously they were uh, carrying out all of Graham's uh, belongings to do forensic testing. And um, yeah, and I just remember, you know, going for dinner that night and it was all we could talk about because it had been all that anybody in Brighton could talk about while ah. she was missing. It was, on, it was in the news every single day. And that is the really sad story 
of 31-year-old Jane Longhurst, her terrible murder and the terrible attempts um, by Graham Coots to conceal what he'd done. Oh, James. I mean, I can tell when you've told that as well. Like, the fact that you were there, your family were there, you know the storage unit. There, there is this thing, isn't there, when you, you can relate in a way because of location. Yeah. I can picture that flat, I can picture the road, I can picture the flat and I can imagine, I can imagine her, like I can even picture her, even though obviously I didn't know her at the time, she was 10 years older than me, so that, yeah, but it just seemed, it's just so sad that, you know, a bright and, it's, it's sad full stop, but then it's, it's got that added personal aspect, a, you know, a young, a 31 year old Brighton woman would be my friend now, a teacher, oh, you know, a volunteer at a youth centre, it would be somebody in my network, you know, obviously I get, now she would be kind of younger than me, but still it, it just felt, feels really personal and just really sad. And, and you know, thankfully things like that don't happen often in Brighton, so. And I think, you know, this, the thing that really got to me is he would revisit the storage unit. That's... Yeah, God knows what he was doing in there. Well, I mean, I think the consom says it all, uh, you know, I. I don't know what came out in, in the investigation, but there, that I find really disturbing. If, if, if it was a sexual accident or whatever you want to call it, I just, I, I always, and when I read about, I'll read a lot about the rough um, sex defence on Twitter. So I follow some people who are really quite instrumental in, in talking about it, lobbying for um, it to be taken seriously. And I, I just always, it's, for me, it's what happens afterwards. And in a lot of these cases, it's hiding of the body, it's covering things up. I think if something, if something genuinely happens, or someone does die in that situation, and it, for whatever reason, it is an accident, maybe there's substances involved, whatever it is, I just, you, you would just assume someone would pick up that phone and phone an ambulance, admit what they've been doing, but in a lot of these cases, it, that's not what happens. And I find it, I just find it terrifying for you to be in that situation and you're completely vulnerable and you've got absolutely no way of defending yourself. You know, it's horrific. It's horrific. And, it's, and I think the other thing is you trust this person. This person is the partner of your best friend. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't think twice, really, would you, about going around no. there? you know and for that trust be abused to the point where you're you're killed and then the treatment and, and maybe yeah. like yeah like so it's like i think one of the the things that we've kind of been talking around is there is uh, you know this is not in any of the stuff that i've read but there are kind of hints that he defiled the body so you know he there might have been kind of necrophilic acts to the but we don't know that like I, I haven't read that but that's the he is referred to in the press as a necrophiliac so that is the impression and it's just that utter disdain for um and disrespect for human life which is just so ghastly there was one i'm going to put it inverted commas positive thing to come out of jane's death you know i find it really weird when people seek these positive things but in 2009 as a direct uh, consequence of what happened in Jane's case, the UK government passed a law banning the possession of violent sexual images. So it's now illegal to have certain types of violent pornography, even between consenting adults. 
Great, and I think that's Which fantastic. some people who are worried about privacy think that that's problematic because consenting adults should be able to do whatever they want. But there is that argument that some people aren't able to kind of process that properly. One thing that I did actually read, um, not on the true crime blog, was that this was in a newspaper report, and it's why I didn't report it as part of the main description of the murder, but it's really interesting in terms of why people turn to crime, is that Graham Coote's girlfriend, a woman called Lisa, I can't remember her surname now, she was pregnant with Graham's twins when he was arrested for the murder. Oh my good God. Right, so she actually took the kids to visit him in prison. She didn't maintain a relationship with him, but she just took the, to visit, took the twins to visit him and she gave an interview to the press. And in the interview, she said that when Graham was a child, he was exposed to a video of somebody being strangled. Like, I don't know if it was a snuff film, something like that. And she said that that really disturbed him. So I don't know if that plays into, so it does show you, it does show you that if you're vulnerable to that kind of suggestibility, and then you watch these kind of videos or see these kind of images. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think we should uh, wrap up because I actually have to go meet my friends in the churchyard in about 10 minutes. A little bit, you know what, thank you so much. That was, that was um, very sad, but it brought up, I think in both of our cases, we brought up really, really uh, serious um, elements of how yeah. cases, and sort of defences. So yeah, no, that strangely, they both sort of tied in well. Absolutely, there was a massive overlap there, really weird. We obviously didn't plan for that. Yeah. What was this, um, oh, tell me about this lovely thing that happened, I wanna know. We need to, now we've talked about murder and necrophilia and defilements and victim blaming. I, I mean, James, I, mean, I wouldn't describe it as lovely. I'd describe it as um, unfortunate. <laughs> so, uh, we, so last Friday, the first time since early Feb, we went to meet Pete's mum and dad, uh, so my mother and father-in-law, just for an afternoon in the New Forest. New Forest is near here, it's absolutely beautiful, it's just brilliant. And, and you know, we've been there a lot, walking, etc. And so they said, like, we've found a place to meet, so let's meet, have a picnic, and then go for a walk. Great. So the place they asked us to meet was called Shavewood, and we'd never heard of it before, but um, it was obviously, we met in a car park, and then there was just like a little area next to the car park where we could sit and have a picnic and then go for a walk. I don't know what it is with British people having picnics in car parks, but you know, there we go. Um, so me and Pete arrived first, and there was only one other car in the car park, and it was just a, a, a bloke sat there on his own, um, not doing much and I could feel like his eyes on me but I just was like oh whatever you know and so we found a spot we put like the blankets out and stuff and Pete's mum and dad turn up and Pete's mum is literally like you, you could, if she says to you do you want a snack she'll then go into the kitchen and produce a buffet for about 40 people so she had quiche she had sausage on a stick sandwiches she had to bake three cakes so out comes this like ridiculous, ridiculous picnic. She's brought a table, chairs, a flask of coffee, napkins. It was just madness. So we're sat there and I can see Pete is totally distracted. So he keeps looking around. And I was like, what? You know, and they're just telling us, what we've been up to in the garden. And I was like, what is it? So we're keeping apart, obviously. Um, with his mum and dad. So we're over here on the blanket, they're in their, their, their seats. And I'm like, Pete, what's wrong? And he's like, Gemma, there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of single men just wandering about here, have you noticed? And I was like, oh yeah. I was like, well, maybe they're like fishing or just went for, <laughs> going for a walk. I was like, don't worry about it. So I was trying to like change the subject and I could see he was getting really like, no, no, this is weird. So he gets his phone out and he just types in uh, Shavewood, New Forest, Hampshire. And the first search result is number one dogging area in Hampshire. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> and literally his mum was like, oh my Christ. Paul, get the quiche, get the cakes, get everything get packed the up. Get the <laughs> And the whole time I was like, do you know what? Oh I, really needed, I really needed a wee. And I thought there's no way I'm going to a bush to have a wee because God knows he'll be in there. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my God. So like the whole so time. basically you went dogging. Yeah. Without meaning to. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you might appreciate that. <laughs> So we're there with like our hundred like bits of quiche and cake and everything. Surrounded I, bet like, I bet they're like, God, this dogging area is going really downhill now these like, <laughs> you know, non-doggers have arrived. These... Well, I mean, I, do you know what? In my head I was like, we can actually feed them all. Like, we've got enough food to feed all the doggers. <laughs> <laughs> well, dogging's probably quite a very, you know, it's hungry work, I would think. Quite exhausting, <laughs> I would think. You probably need a few refreshments. You should have passed over a nice quiche Lorraine, keep them, keep them, <laughs> keep them. Love. I think having sausage on a stick would help. <laughs> <laughs> Was it yeah. those tiny little sausages? <laughs> and then literally a car came in, parked, looked at us and then reversed and left. I was like, how rude. <laughs> how rude. Yeah, because you, you clearly weren't their cup of tea. They, weren't there, they were there for another kind of, they were eating out, but not in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> oh my well, God, I, I love it. I thought you'd appreciate that. I so. love it. Um, I don't have any funny stories to tell. I, I just, I feel like I'm in Groundhog Day. So um, yeah, I don't really have any funny stories to tell, but I can tell you the one thing I feel really happy about, and that is um, the promise of a foreign holiday. Oh my God, the idea that in a week's time, I could be speaking Spanish, even if I go to like Italy, I'm still going to be speaking Spanish because that's the only <laughs> language I know. Hola. The idea of being in the summer speaking Spanish um, makes me feel. I mean, who knows? Maybe we'll find the uh, the number one Spanish dogging spot and uh, uh -oh. set up a, set up some tapas. Well, please, please let me know because obviously I have to tell my in-laws as soon as possible. <laughs> wow. I don't think Spanish do quiche though. We'll have to come up with something else. <laughs> well, they do that really nice um, like Spanish omelette, don't they? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh James, so this has been so nice. Episode six. Episode six. It will go up shortly, and um, yeah, uh, I'm gonna head off now and go and have beers with my friends. Have an amazing weekend. I will. I will, and I'm very much looking forward to the next one. It might be a little bit of a break because obviously you're on leave. Yeah. Um, but no, we're gonna do. Actually, I think the next one we might do a Lucy Blackman special. Do you think? I That's think next. It's about time. But um, listen, have the best best time on leave and thanks again and this has been true crime lockdown thank you see you soon everyone